listening to the No Life Skills Podcast with your host, Ashlyn. My advice for other sex workers, don't do what I did. Giving you an inside look at the fascinating world of sex work. Yeah, a little bit awkward, but uh, informational, I guess. Connect with other professionals and allies of the industry. I was like, wow, this is easy money. Now, join the conversation while we share inspiring stories on the No Life Skills Podcast. So hi, welcome to another episode of No Life Skills. I'm Ashlyn and I'm here today with C.E. Hoffman. She is a sex work advocate, recorded musician, published author, wannabe Jungian. She wrote her first novel at 11 years old as and has been published online and in print since 2010. Her book Sluts and Whores was her literary debut. So hello, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm psyched to be here. Yay. So where are you from originally and where do you live now? Well, I'm originally from Edmonton, Alberta, and after various treks across our beloved country, I've actually come back to Edmonton for a while. Okay. I thought you were in Ontario now. Yeah. I mean, Ontario is my beloved, probably, definitely wins out from Alberta. But (laughs) I'm here for now. I've kind of circled back in more ways than one. Okay, cool. And what is something fun you like to do in Edmonton? (laughs) <laughs> if anything. That's a trick question, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Could I, be. I mean, <laughs> suffice to say, whatever kind of fun people have here, I <laughs> have never had a lot of. But I mean, that's one of the reasons I ran away to begin with. But it's definitely been fun to come back. You know, it's only when you get that kind of retrospect that you can really see who you are versus who you've become, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So you, you're saying that Ontario is a lot more fun then? <laughs> you're for not me yeah <laughs> okay cool you're not selling Edmonton to the listeners who aren't familiar That's okay. I know I feel so bad I used to honestly like avoid honesty if I had anything remotely resembling like a dissenting opinion and I'm trying to be okay with just saying no I actually don't like that thing <laughs> hey, Edmonton I think it's fine. is on that list <laughs> I understand because I'm from here too so you know <laughs> totally you get it Denton yeah. like we all know how it works oh yes oh yes <laughs> so what is something that you're passionate about? I think passion is a beautiful concept. I think in some ways we're all seeking some form of passion in our lives and it's a bit meta, but for me, I'm passionate about passion. I'm passionate about sparking people awake by whatever means necessary sometimes. Very cool. I like that. And what do you like to do for fun in your free time? Oh, fun is a difficult concept for me. I'm super (laughs) conscientious regarding my industriousness. So the concept of sitting down and doing something non-productive but still enjoyable is a real struggle for me. I think one thing, though, is I really love watching musicals. I was raised on musicals, the old school Hollywood ones, and I've carried that love with me. It's a total part of my geekdom. So I think that definitely qualifies as just silly and fun. Very cool. And do you have a favorite? It's all about, you know, that quote from the Perks of Being a Wallflower when someone asks what his favorite book is and he says a title and they ask why. And he says, because it's the last one I read. Oh. <laughs> That's how I feel about musicals. So right now it's Rocket Man. Have you seen it? No, I, I've barely <gasps> seen any musicals. <laughs> I I don't I never watch movies. I'm the worst. <laughs> well, that's okay. They're honestly a waste of time. Ultimately. <laughs> See, there you go. That makes me feel better. <laughs> I'll have to check it out though. <laughs> it's a really cute one. 
and I definitely love it. Cool. That's awesome. So you have been in sex work. So what type of sex work have you done? I mean, the one that I'm most open to discussing right now is stripping. Yes. I've done a lot of stripping in Southern Ontario and I made an attempt at stripping out in Halifax, which did not work out so well. (laughs) Why not? Oh, I'm not a fan of non-contact dance. To me, the central component of a lap dance is that physical intimacy of literally being on a person's lap. Mm-hmm. I cannot compute the point of of distance dancing, as it were. And that's all they offer out there. And oh, I hated it. Huh. I couldn't I couldn't stand it, you know, being so close to someone and not actually being able to connect with them. Interesting. I didn't know that it was no contact. So you can be like as close as possible to the person, just can't touch them. Is that the rule? In this club that was out in Dartmouth, you actually had to dance on a little stage with a little half cage on it. So there, oh. was, like, you couldn't even get anywhere close. It was like go-go in retrograde. It sucked. What the heck? I have never heard of this. And <laughs> did you make, like, were the rates the same there for dances as they are in Ontario or was it d- Yeah, cheaper? I think it was. Wow. Oh no, it was actually a bit cheaper, I think, okay. because the house kept five out of the 20, whereas in all the clubs I danced with in Ontario, danced at, it was 20 up front that I could keep. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Really different. I mean, same thing with Alberta out here, right? I've never even conceptualized dancing here because as far as I know, it's no contact here too. And that's just not my jam. I've definitely had contact in strip clubs. That's good to <laughs> so hear. So I don't know. I don't know what the rules are, though. But I, I can say from experience, I've right? Had... Like by the book versus real life, which is so much about you know that's so much of what we're talking about here is the conception versus the reality of what sex work is. Yeah, it's just so different. <laughs> oh man! So do you remember what your very first exposure to sex work was? Like, did you see it in a movie? Did your friend tell you about it? Like, how did you get into stripping? in the first place? Well, I I love that question. It is so much a two-parter question because I think so much of our indoctrination into our perceptions of sex work are totally subliminal and subconscious. You know, there's so much censorship, even in those old original movies I loved to watch where it's this little uncanny valley of subtext where you're like, is she, is that what she does? I'm not sure. Like, so when I really think about it, the, the richest example I can give would be a streetcar named desire based on the Tennessee Williams play. And when I first watched it in my teens, it was that question hanging over it. I was like, is that what that means? Her, (laughs) her quote, that's kind of her admission of being a sex worker, having been one is yes, I have had many meetings with strangers. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Very lady of the night euphemism. So yeah, when it comes to that's really the difference, you know, unconscious exposure versus conscious exposure is so different. And as for me with starting stripping, I moved to Ontario with the conscious aim to explore sex work and stripping, I felt very called to heal my trauma and my femininity and to explore my sexuality and that dynamic energy of intimacy in a safe space, which I was very lucky to find with some amazing clubs. And so why Ontario? Why didn't you want to explore stripping here in Alberta first? Like, did you just move to Ontario just to strip? Was that the only reason? 
that was my primary objective for sure. Okay. Interesting. I think a lot of it was that grace of anonymity when you move somewhere new. Mm -hmm. I really needed that for many reasons in my life. I needed to reshape myself. And honestly, I think that is, though it's kind of cliche, I think that's one of the best ways to do it is to move away from quote unquote home, move away from that safety zone of preconceived notions of self. And that's what I did. And it, it really worked out. It was a struggle as is almost any valuable growth, but it was very worth it. Wow. Very cool. So how did you know what to do when you got to Ontario? Like, did you know anybody out there or did you just walk into a club and ask for a job? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I remember (laughs) I didn't have internet yet. I actually lived uh, in Ontario without a computer for most of my duration there. I wrote my fifth novel on a typewriter while I was there. Oh my God. (laughs) So that first week there, I would go to the library and look up different clubs in the city. (laughs) And then I just chose one that felt good because I'm super intuitive. And literally you're right. You nailed it. Walked in and was like, hi, (laughs) what's going on here? You know, and the rest is history. Wow. And so (laughs) you did lap dances. Did you also do stage as well? Yeah, I loved stage. I really kind of liked subverting expectations on stage. I I really was doing that a lot, even just in my appearance, my choice of how I would comport myself in the club, all of those things. I didn't wear makeup. You know, I didn't wear the super tall shoes. I was really challenging expectations of what is required Mm -hmm. for a feminine person to be sexy. And I think in that I succeeded. I was, I had a very wild, scary little stage show. (laughs) Yes. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would always go from a theme, which was always really exciting for me. So my first theme that I was working with was the notion of freedom. So, oh, I hope I can remember all of the songs. I may not actually, oh no. Yeah, I got them. I would start with who am I to feel so free by men for the first song. For the second song, I would do I'm Free by Soup Dragons. (laughs) And then for the third song, the nude song, I would end off with Wild Thing by the Trogs. And I (laughs) loved that set. I, I just loved that idea of it being like an extemporization of choice and autonomy. You know, it was a really thrilling act for me. I mean, there were others that I did, but I think that was kind of my favorite. No, that's really cool. Did you prefer stage over like private dances or what did you like the most about stripping? Well, as much of, as much of an introvert as I am, obviously the stage show was really liberating. I joked that it was practice for being in a band. I later (laughs) started a band in Halifax, but all of that being said, I, the thing I miss most about stripping is the lap dances and, and every aspect of that, you know, the foreplay leading to the lap dance, you know, the amazing colloquy you could share with your clients, getting to know them, having those flirtations and that interest. And then it's just that moment of being, being able to ask, do you want to dance? It was Mm -hmm. such a great moment, you know? Yes. And so do you remember the very first lap dance you gave to somebody? Like, how did you know what to do? Like, did some, did another girl teach you how to give a lap dance? Did you look up a video? Like, <laughs> How do you figure it out? It was pretty intuitive for me okay. because, you know, teenagers, what, what, what did we call it back then? You know, grinding, grinding. You have dry sex, right? <laughs> that was what it was called. Oh, God. So 
was just, it was that old school reminiscence. At so you just went for it. The natural instincts kicked in. Oh, totally. I think that's the most beautiful thing about these intimacies is there is something so natural about it. And I do remember my first lap dance. He was a really sweet Asian guy. He was young, you know, early, early 20s. So around the same age as me. And he abstained from alcohol and he was really spiritually conscious. And we had a really great spiritual discussion. <laughs> and then he left without me getting a dance. And and I could kind of see some sidelong looks, you know, from some of the other dancers like, oh, gee, you wasted your time there. Mm-hmm. And then he came back and he said, you know, I've been thinking about it and I would really love a lap dance from you. I think it would be really meaningful. And that really stands out for me. It Aww. was like, yeah, it was, it was in some ways the apogee of my intention, you know, to really reach a special place with one person. Yeah, that's really cool. That's awesome. I like that you can yeah, recall that. Did he come back the same night or was it a different night? It was the same night. Okay. In fact, I think it was like 10 minutes later. Oh something. my God. How cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really sweet. And so you mentioned that you're an introvert. See, I am also a self-proclaimed introvert. And so the thought of giving anybody a lap dance terrifies me. So <laughs> it's very interesting to me that you've, you love lap dances and you've been on stage and mm. how, how does an introvert do that? <laughs> oh, it's such a good question. I mean, I wish we could ask Kurt Cobain, but he's not available. <laughs> Is he an introvert too? <laughs> oh, I think he definitely was. I feel that there's, I mean, maybe you can relate to this as an introvert. Of course, our inner worlds are just resplendent. You know, they're very complex and rich. But I think for, perhaps I'm projecting here, but for me personally as an introvert, there is always that desire to share that in some way that I can manage. Mm -hmm. I can't manage with long-term vibrant socialization, but I tend to find that in my creative expression, that's a way to filter my personality out in moderated doses Mm -hmm. that people can handle me and I can handle people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think of, yeah, me going on stage and stripping. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a lot of respect for strippers. (laughs) Lots of people say that, you know, who are exploring different mediums of sex work. I've talked Mm -hmm. to a lot of people and I've always been surprised, you know, these beautiful people saying, oh, I would be too shy. I would be too shy. That really interests me. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think once I got up there, I would probably just black out and (laughs) the natural instinct would kick in or I don't know, I would cry. Who knows? But (laughs) (laughs) well, either could be a very interesting experience. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So maybe one day we'll see. (laughs) So when you first started sex work, did you have any preconceived notions of what the job would be like? And did that differ from what it was actually like? (laughs) You know, it's funny. I I try not to dwell too much on themes of predestination, but in Mm -hmm. so many ways, I felt like this was a destination I had already arrived at and I was simply arriving in slow motion. Mm -hmm. So it all came really naturally to me. And there was really, I can't think of a conscious expectation that was shattered to pieces by any means. Mm -hmm. So your views were pretty realistic of what you actually encountered you would say or you just or you just didn't have any expectations yeah maybe that's more (laughs) more likely is that I went in with a very open mind you know very much the uncarved block Mm -hmm. of Taoism or at least that's what I was trying to achieve at that time in my life and I think that was 
really beneficial because then things didn't bother me as much <laughs> as they might have otherwise. And did you know any strippers? Like, were, did you have any friends in, in the business before you started at all? Or you just made friends at the club when you started? Yeah, I really didn't know anybody beforehand. But one really cool thing is that after I started to slowly come out and sometimes divulge this to friends, it was always really wonderful how many people would respond, oh yeah, me too. <laughs> really? And want to share their experiences. You know, it was like a secret society I was being indoctrinated into. So that was really, that was really beneficial to me to recognize that that home is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just have to be brave enough to be the one to reach out. And as for connections made, few long-term connections were actually made at my places of work, but safe space in London, Ontario is an amazing support center for sex workers. And I volunteered there and, oh man, those people are incredible. I actually dedicated the book to safe space because oh. they just did so much for me. I mean, I was technically volunteering, but I felt so helped. Oh, that's so cool. And how did they help you? By validating my existence as a person who practiced sex work. I'd never yet uncovered that space in my life. It was so, so deeply validating. Mm, and none of your other friends or family like were supportive of your choice to, to strip. And so you found mm. that validation through safe. Yes. I think that's a, a pretty accurate. So it is a simplification, mm -hmm. but it is an accurate one for okay. sure. Okay. My parents are at the point where they've accepted that that was something that I did, but I don't think they <laughs> let it enter any further than that. And yeah, it is, it's always interesting, you know, when you, uh, you can almost drop that little bomb and gauge someone's response. And again, so much of that, if people respond negatively or respond from a place of stereotyping, you can see that it's, it's mostly miseducation as opposed to malice. Oh yeah. T I totally agree. Right. Yeah. I'm very outspoken and tell everybody that I'm a sex <laughs> worker and uh, sometimes I'll just tell them, oh, I sell feet pictures online to get the conversation going and see how, how I think they'll react. <laughs> exactly. You know, and sometimes you let out a little bit and depending how they react, then maybe you'll let out a little bit exactly. more later. Exactly. Yeah. It's like a fun <laughs> game. I like to play. <laughs> and it's a healthy game. You know, we need to acknowledge how, what a powerful archetype we're working with. You know, the prostitute archetype is ancient and empowering and it has the potential to revivify, but it also threatens to dismantle a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Could you speak more about that? What is being dismantled? I think the biggest threat that it poses, honestly, is the idea of monogamous marriage. Mm -hmm. I think it would Schopenhauer, who was quoted as saying that London prostitutes are sacrifices on the altar of monogamy. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think it's pretty valid and pertinent, though obviously there's a bit of a, a victim projection there, but I still think it's really valid. And I think that's what we need to take into account when people are resistant. You know, when you're asking someone to modify their presuppositions, you're asking them to pretend, potentially derail their entire semblance of reality. And that's scary for lots of people. And we need to be patient with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. I totally agree. 
I want to go back to the strip club first, though. Can we talk more about the strip club? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Oh, yes. Okay. So what were the interactions like with the other women working at the club? Did you befriend them? Were they helpful to you or did you keep to yourself? I mean, there was a complicated dynamic from the outset because, again, as mentioned, I was subverting expectation and playing with my own identity in ways that were against the norm. You know, so I was in some ways challenging the expectations of how we should look or behave. I don't think that necessarily bothered anybody per se, but it definitely automatically differentiated me. Mm -hmm. So I, and again, it's so difficult to, to determine if your perceptions of people's perceptions of you are remotely accurate or how much of that is anxiety and projection on your part. I did often get a feeling of cynicism directed to me, that they didn't take me seriously. They didn't take my presence seriously. They didn't expect me to last by any means. Uh, And and did you last? How long did you last? (laughs) I I did, you know, on and off for a few years for sure. You know, so it was, again, I didn't consciously acknowledge that as much. That's more of a retrospective now recognizing like, Oh, you were kind of sticking out like a sore thumb there with your taking your book to work and all of that stuff. But did you, do you think you stuck out to clients of the strip club as well? Like differentiated yourself from the other women? Did you do well at the strip club? Did clients like that about you that you were different? Yeah, I think everybody has a niche Mm -hmm. and that absolutely was my niche, you know, in, in in some sad respects, I think I really did cater to the Madonna whore dichotomy that any client, well, I don't want to say any client, but that many mm-hmm. clients, sex workers are guilty of imposing on us. You know, there was that idea of like, oh, you don't belong here. You're not <laughs> like these girls. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that kind of shadow element, like thinking that it's complimentary. But of course, for me, it was highly problematic because I'm thinking these women around me are are beautiful and just as worthy of your respect. Yeah. You think that these clients saw you looking, I'm quote unquote, less like a typical stripper. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to give you their time instead of the other strippers because they are, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> No, you're right. You know, you're right, right (laughs) on it. I mean, I've, you know, you can encounter a similar idea with sugar daddies. You know, there's this kind of denial going on where it's like, oh, well, I don't, I don't want to talk to you if you're a prostitute. Oh, yeah, no no pros. Oh, (laughs) yes. Interesting, interesting, considering the financial dynamic of these arrangements. Huh? That's a that's a fun little game of denial and rationalization you have going on. there. Oh, totally. Right. And I think all of that is, is a client's problem that they have with themselves being there doing those things. I mean, there's just as much stigma attached to clients as there are to workers. Oh, yeah. And well, the clients that are doing that that have the Madonna whore complex, they're just projecting Mm -hmm. themselves, you know, like they're, it's, uh, it makes me so mad. And especially on, you know, sugar diet websites, you see that all the time. No pros. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, sir, what do you think we're doing here? You're paying (laughs) me for your time. There's no difference. Like, There's no difference, you know, and it matters so much to people how things sound in their head, which is why demystifying these experiences is crucial. And I love what you said, owning that reality that we are all too often an outlet for unconscious shadow 
not mm-hmm. just from men, you know, from society in general. That Schopenhauer quote is legit. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And it's like even when other women who aren't in the industry have a problem with sex work, I know it has nothing to do with me and it has everything to do with their own ideas about their own sexuality, you know. Oh, yeah. And the worth of sexuality mm-hmm. and, and that idea of real radical consent, not just enthusiastic consent, but a radical consent where this is directly benefiting all parties engaged. Mm-hmm. So what do you think when people say online or in general that all sex work is inherently exploitative <sighs> and that sex workers can't give consent because of the power imbalance, supposed power imbalance? Right. I think everybody seeks broad conceptions because we need to take things for granted in order to stay sane. And if we try to dig into the minutia of every single philosophical or moral concept, we're probably going to go the way of Nietzsche, which uh, didn't work out great for him. He died insane, literally. (laughs) So I understand people's motivations for stereotyping and oversimplification But even so, that's not a place we can remain if we want to evolve as a species. We need to, as I mentioned recently in a podcast with my friend Tara, Mommy Needs a Drink, Mm -hmm. we need to become comfortable with discomfort. Mm -hmm. We need to become comfortable with engaging in the unknown. And there are so many unknowns in sex work Mm -hmm. because we have pushed it under the bed for way too long. And there is no simple answer to any of this. Every time you have an encounter with a client, it's going to be a completely different experience. It is different from person to person. And that's why for me, the most important thing is self-awareness, truly engaging in your autonomy, being like, yes, this is, this is good right now. This is great, you know, and Mm -hmm. getting that feedback from your body and your soul and being willing to go there and also being willing to recognize the time, you know, using stripping as an example for a dance where you leave it and you're like, that wasn't great. You know, that, <laughs> yeah. that was a, a, there was a violation there. There wasn't something right there, you know, cause guess what? Interpersonal relations are, can I swear on this podcast? Oh yes, please. <laughs> Interpersonal relations are fucking complicated. And mm-hmm. I, I, you can't, you know, oh, like I, I understand like this pisses me off so much too. You know, it's that insecure triangulation. You know, you need to create a victim, you need to create a villain, and then you need to create a hero. Mm-hmm. And that's bullshit. Real life is so nuanced. Real life does not fit into that simplification. No way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I want to know, how did you come out to the people around you as a stripper? Did Were you very open about it from the beginning? When did you tell your parents? <laughs> I I don't like lying. I'm going to start with that. I, even when I'm withholding, I don't like it. I really value honesty to the point that I've actually had to learn boundaries, learning that uh. you needn't divulge everything. And when I first, I, I got hired at the club as a stripper uh, but then the vo- the boss determined my shoes inappropriate for stage, so so she actually demoted me <laughs> oh. to shooter girl for a while, which was also very enjoyable. So <laughs> I j- I did that until I saved up enough money to buy to buy spiky heels. That oh. was her specification. Oh. Uh, I had clunky heels, and those weren't good for stage. Okay, <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> but they helped me not fall, so I did still prefer them. But in any case. Oh. <laughs> So the story to my parents started and remained, I'm working as a shooter girl. Uh, 
a, a fact at which they were not thrilled to begin with. And it was only at a, a kind of desperate moment in a phone call with my mom that I told her that this is what I was doing. And it, yeah, her, her tone wasn't welcoming, but again, I understand that my parents and I are very different. It is a blessing and a challenge. It's a constant challenge and opportunity for me to grow and practice tolerance, which I lack. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I understand why they've reacted to my, even my identity, my bisexuality, you know, and just being a really sexual person growing up. Those are aspects of my identity. I can't control all the way up to life choices, such as pursuing sex work. You know, they, I understand why those come so far out of left field for them and why I need to practice patience. Mm -hmm. And so how long were you a stripper before you told your parents? Oh, that's a good question. I think it had been at least, at least half a year. Okay. Okay. I would say. All right. And now what do they think of it? Cause you're not in the industry currently. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm not yeah. working right now, you mm -hmm. know, and I'm living with them right now. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> love so, that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so again, I think, again, my addiction to honesty, as it were, which arrived from my own deep, deep foray into the hells of lying. I had a two, no, a one year long affair with, you know, your entire life becomes a lie when you're doing something like that. And I, I reemerged from that as this Phoenix that was insistent on practicing integrity to the best of my ability and living with my parents again, again, I've been learning that tenuousness between lies and withholding and sometimes even lying, small lying to again, simplify like people do with stereotyping. Mm -hmm. And it's not a, it's not a practice I wish to habituate, but I understand its necessity sometimes. Mm -hmm. So that's the space that I'm in right now. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. I can relate yeah. for sure. Right? So, sometimes, it's complicated. Yeah. Sometimes the truth doesn't always help. <laughs> it doesn't always. Exactly. And that's what it is too. It's about recognizing the partnership required to be honest mm -hmm. in a relationship. Both parties have to assent to that. If one party is resistant to truth and just doesn't want to go there, wants to leave that big pink elephant in the room, you can't slap them with the trunk until they change <laughs> their minds about it. You have to accept where they're at, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. <laughs> what do you know about yourself now that you didn't know when you got into the business? So what did sex work teach you about yourself? Oh, I'm so grateful to the love goddess. Cause really, I think that's what archetype we're invoking when we're dealing with this stuff. I mean, that's the, the ideal. And I'm so, so grateful to everything that has been offered me this, this validation of self, this deep, these deep levels of self-awareness more. So I would say with my mind and heart than my body having survived trauma, I still am in a weird relationship with my body to this day. But for the rest of it, oh my gosh, it it rekindled my romance with myself. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. In what way would you say? Well, again, you know, whether <laughs> accurate or not, I can see I conceived a lot of expectations that mm -hmm. were placed on myself of how I should be and how I should behave. Again, being a gender fluid person and growing up feeling that I needed to be a girl, things like that were really hard on me. And being in a space like sex work where I could be completely myself 
Mm-hmm. It, it was such a game changer. And it, of course it taught me, yeah, things I didn't expect about myself regarding my desires and the way that I like to date. I love approaching. I love being the one who crosses the room to say hello, <laughs> stripping Tommy. Like, wow. That's what you have to do. You have to make eyes and you have to be the bold one and have that self-assertion of your desire. Mm-hmm. And man, I can't think of something more empowering than that. Wow. Uh, see, are you sure you're an introvert? Because that's very bold. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it totally is. It's like, I'm a very social introvert, but then I always need that time to be truly myself alone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you need to recharge. Oh, yeah. 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 I get that for sure. <laughs> Do you have any advice for somebody looking to get into sex work or stripping, I guess I should say? Yeah, I think I I already kind of briefly alluded to it in some essence is that idea of true autonomy and deep self-awareness. You know, and and the best thing about that is those principles can be extrapolated for anything mm-hmm. in your life. You know, know why you're doing something, know what you do and don't want, know that you're going to make mistakes mm-hmm. and know that it's in your power to recorrect your boundaries. You know, I think that like anything having to do with someone else, it's a dance. It's a dance between your wants, your motivations for your wants, Mm -hmm. and the same with the person that you're dealing with. So that's all I would say is (laughs) legit know thyself. And do you think, see, I don't know if it's fair to say that people getting into stripping or sex work will know everything beforehand, because I think those things Mm -hmm. come with time, right? And boundaries are learned in this business. Oh, absolutely. And you're so right. That's such an important caveat is to recognize that the discovery of self is continual and perpetual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What you really need is to step in with an awareness of seeking that awareness, being Mm -hmm. open to that knowledge of yourself, no matter how scary or shattering it can be. I think for lots of people, perhaps even feminine people in particular, at least for a while, I'm seeing it come up a lot more with masculine people too these days, but I think there's a real fear of our inner power. Mm-hmm. And why do you think that is? Oh, that's such a big, beautiful <laughs> question. I mean, I, I think there's just something fundamental in the human psyche that warns people of climbing too high. You know, there's Icarus's father in all of us. And of course, Icarus turns out to be right. Icarus was a stupid motherfucker flying that <laughs> high to the sun, <laughs> you know, and, and taking the fig off the tree, all of those things. We have this beautiful battle in ourselves, you know, this dopaminergic response of wanting to get out there and go and do and explore and cross every boundary possible. And then there's also this oxytocin kind of space where you're like, I want to be safe. Mm -hmm. I want to stay in the womb. I want to stay in the cave. I want to stay in the walled city. And I don't want to go beyond that. And again, a little of both Mm -hmm. is probably ideal. Definitely a balance, especially in sex work. (laughs) Oh, exactly. Right. I mean, I think it's so good to be open to different avenues and open to different types of people. And dipping your toe in is such a good way to do that. Dip your toe into something like stripping or camming or anything like that and just start getting a feel of how far you want to go. I think it's so good to be playful and explorative, but also to be gentle with ourselves. Absolutely. And you know what, if it doesn't, if someone doesn't like sex work, they don't have to stay in it forever. You know, you gave it a try and it's not for everybody. That's for sure. Exactly. Either way, it's going to be a really beneficial experience because you're experiencing Mm -hmm. life on other, on the other side of the wall. 
That's totally. so monumental. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not something that a lot of people get to experience. And I think it's a really powerful learning experience, even if it's just for a short time. Absolutely. And that's the best way to look at anything in life, right? Mm-hmm. Such a great teaching. <laughs> totally. And so do you have any funny or interesting stripping stories that you want to share? I wish I did, but I'm, <laughs> I'm so boring. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, well, I, I, I took the, a book to work and then I took a book to work. You gave some lap dances and that was and that. <laughs> I got really into J.D. Salinger for a while. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think for me, it, it's less funny as much as there's been some really beautiful human moments is what I call them in my writing. I capitalize the H and the M on that human moments where you're just really touched by a person's authenticity. You know, the way that some clients are willing to open up to sex workers is so humbling. You know, we, I I said this in a previous podcast also, but we are the frontline workers of the soul. You know, we hear things that therapists do not hear. Yeah, I love that. Oh my gosh, you're giving me so many good quotes today. My God, (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Oh, I totally agree. I think that's really beautiful. And so why did you decide to retire from stripping? It's mostly circumstantial. My move to Toronto somewhat precipitated that because I just didn't get the vibe that I was what people were necessarily looking for Uh in, in Toronto, you know, in a bigger city again, in my, (laughs) you know, my cute little no makeup pixie vibe probably wouldn't have made me as much money there. So So are you sure you didn't even try? (laughs) It's a good question. You know, right before leaving Toronto, actually, I did get hired again, coming full circle. Life is so cyclical like this. I did get hired as a shooter girl, but it, the wires got crossed and it just kind of fell through. And I personally took that as a sign that Toronto probably wasn't a viable long-term option. I see. I see. And could you see yourself returning to stripping one day? Oh yeah. I miss it a lot. Yeah. You know, again, if it were contact for sure. And in a small club, I really enjoyed and felt I had some belonging Mm -hmm. in for sure. I mean, I do hope to make a, an affluent career out of writing, which is (laughs) probably too (laughs) ambitious in some senses, but I'm, I'm willing to aim for that bullseye in any sense. And even then I would probably still strip occasionally just for, for fun, you know, to get back in my body as well. Cause of course writing is so intuitive and so intellectual and you're so, it's an out of body experience a lot of the time. And, you know, I'm an INFJ. I need to learn to be in my body and all oh, stripping really helped ground me there. Really? That's interesting. Cause I find with a lot of other sex workers, even myself, sometimes I can not be in my body at the time. Like I disassociate sometimes, you know, so it's interesting to hear that it helped you get into your body more. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, any physical act is going to be a doorway to either. And again, so much is that of that is depending on context and even just what your body chemistry is doing in any given moment. You know, if you ate enough or slept enough, where your emotional and hormonal responses are at, you know, and that's why self-awareness really is mm-hmm. the most complicated, you know, goal to actually yes. engage in in sex work. Because you're right, totally, sometimes there is that disassociation. It's in some ways, inevitable in anything that involves the body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. 
And so would you ever strip in Alberta or strictly Ontario? Strictly not where you're from. <laughs> I'm just I curious. Say, <laughs> I would mostly just say strictly contact. You know, if there was some cool club out in, I don't know, Grand Prairie or oh something my God. that did contact, I'd be like, bring it on. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Like, are you sure that's the rule in Alberta? Like, <laughs> I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> I know. I mean, you've definitely piqued my curiosity. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> then you would be like the best Edmonton stripper ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I love the strippers. I love it. I, I love going there. Love it. <laughs> yeah. I, that was what I loved, too, about stripping in a small town in Ontario. It was where the kids went, you know, the college <laughs> kids went to just to have fun and hang yeah. out because there was no real cool bar. I loved that. You know, it was but like they, a big fun thing. But they better be spending money though. Do they spend money? <laughs> the kids, do they have money to spend on strippers? No way. <laughs> oh. See, no way. <laughs> I thought, I thought strippers get mad when people come into the club and don't pay them. <laughs> well, I guess they're giving us an ambiance, which <laughs> boasts its own value. I suppose, but yeah, money, <laughs> money is where it's at. <laughs> okay, we're going to switch gears now. So t- tell me, how did you begin as an artist or author? Oh, I love that. And it feels so similar in that this was potentially an inborn archetype I was carrying around with me. Like the sacred prostitute, there was always this this poet, this storyteller, you know, from a very, very young age. And again, it really has felt like in an, an inevitability for sure. My, as you mentioned in that lovely intro, my mm-hmm. first concrete exploration of the literary worlds in, in true actuality was that full length novel I wrote when I was 11. And that was, it was a pivotal moment for me. It was a moment when I realized that I could do something not everyone else can. Mm-hmm. And what was the novel about? Oh, it was actually, I'm actually editing it right now, which has been, oh, so wonderful because it's, it's totally written from an unconscious space. Obviously I was 11 and I wasn't remotely cognizant of all of these archetypal fantasy themes. It's a fantasy novel that I was pushing through this plot. Mm. And as a result, I think it's actually a really charming, accessible adventure story, which is so cool. Now I try to consciously work with archetypes and, you know, with blatant references there too. But back then I wasn't doing that. I was just working in the dream space. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's probably the most powerful method you can use, at least for your first draft. Your mm-hmm. second draft, mm-hmm. you need to you need to bring out the the incisive sword, you know, you need to get down and kill your darlings and all that. Mm, interesting. So you're planning on releasing it? Was it not previously released? It is not yet published. It's my oldest novel and it hasn't been published yet. So I don't think it'll be my full length debut. I have Mm -hmm. another urban fantasy novel that I think makes more sense there as a debut Mm -hmm. because it's more keeping in theme with the rest of my writing. But yeah, I think I'll definitely at the very least look at an indie fantasy press to pitch the road to Saranda. That's what that one's called. Very cool. That's awesome. So who are some of your literary inspirations? Oh, I always love that question, even though it's so overwhelming. I'm sorry. It's such a, I'm sure you get asked this all the time. (laughs) No, I love it. I love it so much. And I try to, again, just answer intuitively. And the contemporaries that usually come up are going to be Zadie Smith, 
Irvin Welsh, Martin Miller, obviously Neil Gaiman's American Gods <laughs> really changed things for me too. Uh, and all of those contemporary authors taught me something different. And I, yeah, you know, it, you know, those, those silly questions, you know, who would you like to have dinner with alive or dead? And it's, <laughs> probably all of those guys and I would just sit and listen. <laughs> ah, very cool. Just sit in the corner and listen. <laughs> <laughs> Take notes. Awesome. That's really cool. And what are the themes of your work? I know you've said fantasy. That's the main theme. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's definitely my, my strictest genre mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> is urban fantasy for sure. But I, I just love that, you know, you, you wanted to ask about themes because of course, I know writers, we want to be so smart and, (laughs) and pretend like we know what we're writing about. But as mentioned with that first novel, we don't have a fucking clue what we're writing about. We are, we're channeling something. And I think the most pertinent themes are oftentimes invisible to the author themselves. And we rely on our readers to guide us and teach us what we're actually talking about. One thing that's been really surprising for me with this collection, I've been receiving some wonderful feedback. I'm really grateful for including typesetters, a really wonderful book reviewer. And the thing that keeps coming back to me, this kind of overwhelming general consensus is how dark it is. People keep saying that this is so raw. It's so dark. It's not for everyone. Oh, this story gave me nightmares. This is great for horror fans. And And I've always been like, oh, I didn't think this short story collection was that spooky. I kind of thought I was, you know, numbing things out in that area. I kind of thought that a lot of these were, there is one story particularly that is horror. You know, it is a horror story that's in there. But the others, I just thought that they were kind of tentatively transgressive and my <laughs> feedback is saying no <laughs> okay are you referring to sluts and whores or you're referring to the uh novel you wrote when you were 11 <laughs> yeah sluts and whores okay okay yeah. i'm like oh wow horror at 11 yeah. okay dark dark but it's funny because even then you know reading reading that book oh yeah there's some dark stuff in there too i mean fantasy And I just love that that's the term that we use for that genre, you know, fantasy, imaginations, you know, it's, it's a very safe space, I think, to play with darkness. You know, there's, there's almost always a bad guy. It's not always clear, especially in urban fantasy, who is fully bad, but there's always that darkness there to play with. And there's always the tempting force of the dark side. You even see that in sci-fi fantasy with Star Wars, right? Mm -hmm. Join me, Luke, you know, and there's something titillating about that for us, I think, as writers and as readers. So I shouldn't be too surprised that there is so much darkness in my stuff, especially regarding my life with mental illness. But yeah, just how apparent it has been to readers has definitely been beneficial education for me. Yeah, well, it's kind of the same, like when I speak about things like that have happened to me in my life or like in regards to sex work. And I think these things are normal and not a big deal. And then other people are like, what the heck? You know, <laughs> like if for us, it just seems normal <laughs> until you tell the public about it. And then maybe it's not. Or it's. Oh, a <laughs> I love that. That's so great. I think that's one of the the most verifying factors of speech you know, speech is a way that we're trying to bounce off what we think to be our truth, our reality onto someone or something else. And then it'll bounce back at us. And it's like, once we hear it echo in our head, in fact, Winston Roundtree, an amazing uh, animator, writer, illustrator, he references that in one of his 
one of his TV series episodes, you know, that it's that idea of you, you just say something out loud and figure out if it's actually true. Mm, Very true. Wow. You're giving me so many good (laughs) quotes to think about. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) This is awesome. So I guess this goes into my next question, but just tell me what is Sluts and Whores? This is your literary debut. Tell the listeners (laughs) what what this is. Oh, that's so exciting. I mean, in so many ways, this is a bit of an abstraction, but it really is a love letter to sex workers, or at least that was one of my primary attempts for sure, a love letter to femininity, to female sexuality, and all that that entails. And it's a short story collection. It does fall into the realm of apparently dark urban fantasy. Yep, yep. (laughs) And yeah, mostly... I hope it does what I think a short story collection should do, which is that it conveys a variety of life experiences, which hopefully, again, do have some unification and some universal attachment Mm -hmm. to which they can aspire. And I, I like to think that this is a cohesive collection for sure. That may even be one of its faults. I, I did have an agent reject this collection and, and she did uh, refer to that as a fault that uh, everything in some ways was too, similar. You know, it was too, Mm. too overarching a theme, but it was a theme to which I wanted to remain loyal. Those ideas of healing and hope and trauma and sexuality. And again, all of the complexities that arise when we're in the space of sex work. Again, no simple answers, no simple questions, no simple anything. Mm -hmm. So are these stories adapted from real life experiences that you've had or other sex workers that you've known? Yes, I did try to remain as true as possible to my personal experience and and sometimes based on hearsay. Mm-hmm. But a, a lot probably a lot more of the experiences therein are lifted mm-hmm. <laughs> from my life than I would probably actually admit if someone questioned me about a specific story. But I think that that does give the collection weight if someone wants to contest you know, saying, oh, that's not factually accurate or something. Mm -hmm. If I needed to, I could stand up and say, well, this is lived experience Mm -hmm. based. Mm -hmm. So yes, it is, at least for my experience, which is, again, by no means representative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And how does your book humanize sex workers in ways not typically seen in literature? Does it? I (laughs) hope (laughs) it accurately portrays us by way of diversification, different backgrounds, different motivations for engaging in sex work, different types of sex work, different outcomes derived from those different types of sex work. I tried to be as honest about the variety of experiences you can find, you know, and, and one main thing I also try to do actually it really wasn't an effort in this case was, but was to write sex workers as people. Imagine that. that. (laughs) I know, right? This idea that our sexuality and our sex work isn't the central theme of our characterization. You know, these people are people who happen to practice sex work. I think that's a wonderful distinction that I don't think has ever been seen before. Not that I'm aware of in like literature, just media in general. So I think that's super awesome because whenever you have a sex worker as a character, that's all they are, I find. 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's like, that's the focal point of their reality. And it's like, I'm sorry, but unless you're like a super high powered lawyer or an obsessive writer like myself, there's Mm going to be way more you can attribute to your identity than the work that you do. Exactly. Exactly. I think that is so awesome. And I think that just helps to humanize sex workers in general, just as seeing them as more than just sex workers. Oh, yeah, just this idea. And even you see this even when there's sometimes dialogue between sex workers and things, you know, all they talk about is work or sex or men or clients. And you're kind of yeah. like, no, you know, we, we talk about normal human things that other normal human people talk about. Yeah, imagine that. Imagine <laughs> that we have a life outside of sex work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Imagine that we like reading or sports or typography or whatever the fuck oh, it is. Oh, that's awesome. I there's love that. One there's one amazing uh, person I met who who was a stripper actually, and I'd love to to write her in as a character one day. She she was in university studying death. I don't remember the academic name for it, but oh, literally that's what she was studying. That's so was, cool. And she was like the most chipper, sweet, seemingly benign little blonde white girl you could ever <laughs> conceive of. And she's there like, yeah, I'm studying death. I love it. It's like my favorite <laughs> subject in the world. <laughs> I love that so much. Because <laughs> that's real life, right? Real life people are complicated and silly and contradictory and interesting. And that isn't all somehow automatically negated because someone's a sex worker. Oh, totally. But I think, yeah, society in general just views sex workers as one-dimensional beings and Mm -hmm. that's that and yeah there's so much more to to all sex workers oh exactly there's so much more to us again it's none of that insecure triangulation you know we're not you know we're not all weeping victims you know we're not all lascivious villains Mm -hmm. you know and and that's usually the two camps that we're placed in and again it's just it's a gross oversimplification, not only of sex workers, but of the reality of the human spirit. Totally, totally. I couldn't agree more. And right? so you <laughs> you kind of touched on this already. Um, you said that you, you hope the other sex workers read this book, but who else would benefit mm-hmm. from reading Sluts and Whores? Like, do you think clients of sex workers would benefit from reading it? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'd love, any writer would love to say their book is a one-size-fits-all mm. demographic, but... <laughs> I know that's not the case. I know that I'm working from a more niche place like Irvin Welsh himself works from, you know. So for me, I would say anybody with an open mind or anybody interested in having their mind opened. Okay. I love that very much. And so I know when you initially reached out to me, you mentioned wanting to talk about some of the common stereotypes sex workers face. So we've kind of spoke about this already, but I wanted to ask you, what do you think the most common stereotypes sex workers face are and how does your book tackle these other than just what we already discussed, like being one dimensional and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, it's so valid to address that specifically, but you're right that I think we've already covered it a lot. So in a sense, I'd like to almost then shift our focus because we know, you know, we know that old school rhetoric of reducing us to this one dimensionality. So I like the idea of instead looking to the future. And I think again, Winston Roundtree is a great reference here. I can't think of another depiction of a sex worker in the media that I could actually resonate with. He's, he's released, actually he released it a few years ago. Now this amazing animated series called people watching, you can find it on YouTube and there's this amazing sex worker character in it. Uh, her work name is candy. I think her (laughs) 
born name is Joan. Mm, okay. <laughs> and she is brilliant. She doesn't shy away from intimidating people with her intellectuality. You know, she she loves to <laughs> to pontificate on all of these broad world theories about sociology and economics. You know, she's not afraid of being vulnerable. She's not afraid of being bitchy, you know, and she's just uh, the best thing, it sh- she actually debuts in the first episode of the series. She's at a speed dating night and she's practicing radical honesty oh. because she's just sick of being fake and sick of people just seeing, you know, blonde hair, big boobs and expecting something from her. And when she says what kind of work she does, you know, she's like, yeah, stripper. And not just because it was the only avenue open to me or anything like that, but I genuinely enjoy taking my clothes off in front of people for money. <laughs> oh my my God, I love that so much. And what were the reactions of the people she was speed dating? <laughs> I mean, honestly, in some ways it was like lifted out of my own life because of <laughs> course so many of these men especially are just flabbergasted <laughs> by a woman unafraid to speak her mind and be herself, including being sexual. She is such a cool character. She does, you know, sex work, outreach work. And she just, you know, she's also in one of the episodes that's like the losers anonymous where she's like, people think I'm super successful, but I'm miserable and lonely, <laughs> you know, and she's, she's just honest about her flaws and she makes mistakes. You know, that's what I love about Winston is he gives his characters permission to make mistakes, even if they're female. That is so awesome. I'm definitely going to look this up after because oh, yeah. I, I can totally relate. I tell everybody that I'm an escort. I just don't care because I love to get people's reactions. I think it's so funny. <laughs> like one time I told a guy, he, he's like, what do you do for work? And I was like, well, I'm a hooker. He's like, but you're so nice and pretty. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I make money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, the things that people say, it's like, <laughs> it's so weird how, again, it's like we have the conception of sex work in the underworld. Yeah. So then when real life people are bringing it out to light and saying, yeah, no, just a human doing a human thing that humans have done forever. Just, just, (laughs) you know, trying to make money to pay my bills and buy food at the end of the day, you know, that's all it is. You know, and it just being a valid enterprise, you know, through which to pay your bills or strengthen your self-resolve or anything else that a career can offer you. Exactly. Exactly. Nothing more, nothing less, you know? Mm. Yeah. (laughs) And so I wanted to ask you, so your book, obviously, I think breaks down the stigma surrounding sex work. And what else do you think can be done in the industry to reduce the stigma that sex workers face to be done in the sex work industry specifically. Yeah. Like how, how can, well, maybe not specifically, I don't, maybe in general, in general. Oh yeah. In general, I think that's a much easier question for me to answer. (laughs) Cause again, I'm such a high intuitive. I'm like, Oh no, you actually want me to apply this stuff? No, 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 no. (laughs) Just say whatever comes to mind. (laughs) I mean, for that, on that broader term, the work that we all need to do is internal you know, like you were saying, the Madonna Hark complex is within. It's about your relationship to the feminine within you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, it's the same thing with dismantling white supremacy and all of that kind of stuff. We all need to do work within. It's uncomfortable, gratifying work. And it's the work that we all personally need to do. And I think everyone is so quick to rush that step Everyone wants to, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but lots of people, I think, yeah, perceive lots. things externally. 
Mm-hmm. And lots of people want the quick fix, you know, without actually doing mm-hmm. the real work. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it takes you know, thinking- time. Yeah, thinking we can just lay out some externalized mandate and that's going to be enough to change people's minds. No, you need to actually, I mean, yeah, normalization is really beneficial, Mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of people don't like to do that internal questioning. So if you just create a functioning norm, okay, we don't call that minority that really terrible term anymore. That's just not appropriate anymore. A large sum of people will say, oh, okay. And they'll accept that. It'll be their normative response, you know, but I think it's, I don't think that's necessarily enough. In fact, I think that's one of the greatest dangers of people just wanting to conform in order to keep the peace and keep things flowing. Mm -hmm. I think that we all need to be willing to question, you know, Descartes' whole idea of turning over the apple cart in your psyche and carefully examining each apple to figure out what ideas are rotten and which ideas can be continually consumed. That's not a popular idea still, you know, because then later came the English turn of phrase that was advising us to do the opposite. Don't upset the apple cart. That's a bad thing. Fuck off, Descartes. We don't want to mess up because this could all just fall apart. But I think we need to trust, you know, that even if we turn over the apple cart of society and most importantly of our own psyches, that we will find a foundation. Descartes, for him, he found consciousness and his personal belief in a deity to be his foundation to work from and to explore everything else. And I think everyone can find something. Everyone can find some kind of base value that can serve as their raft for them to float through the chaos of dismantling really dangerously toxic and oppressive hierarchical structures. We can no longer take these systems for granted. They have only really worked for a small amount of people and we need to aspire to something greater. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I very much agree. So you're saying turn over the rotten apples. (laughs) Exactly. Kick over your apple cart, man. But I mean, don't throw away the cart. You you have that pendulum swing sometimes where people are just like, oh, to hell with all of this, you know, let's burn it all down. And it's like, well, no, that's not great either. Because patriarchy has, has done a lot of terrible things in the name of religion and in the name of political institutions. But it's also given us, you know, indoor plumbing, which is pretty fucking sweet. Exactly. You can't throw away everything, you know, like. (laughs) Exactly. We just, and that's what we have to come to is a really accurate level of discernment. So again, we come to self-awareness. It seems that's Mm -hmm. the theme Mm -hmm. of this episode is we really need to work on being self-aware. And as you so beautifully reminded me, you know, that's a process. We're all going to be walking into this blind at first and that's okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's my goal with this podcast and just me being outspoken online is to normalize these things and mm-hmm. get people thinking about these topics in a different way that maybe they haven't thought about them before. So, Oh yeah. I think what you're doing here is so important. Even just the idea of giving people a platform from which to express themselves. It's, you know, when you look at newspapers, you know, and when independent newspapers would come out, you know, to be a voice to certain groups of people, it's, it's such an important place. People need to hear themselves first and then they need to give themselves space to be heard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Well, Do you have anything else to say? This has been so great. Where can people find you online? When is your book coming out? Yeah, no, this has been amazing. I'm so glad that you made the time for me. And it's been so special doing this on the full moon. 
oh it is a full moon yeah. that's why i'm feeling weird today <laughs> i know right like clockwork i'll be like why am i feeling so funky and miserable oh the full moon's coming up okay yeah. ah it all makes sense now <laughs> <laughs> and as for the plugs the mm-hmm. plugins haha <laughs> that sounds dirty now um, <laughs> that's my website you can find my twitter and my youtube from there please do follow me and subscribe those are my two social medias. I'm not a huge fan of social media beyond that. I try to stay more in the real world than in a screen, which is hard because I'm a writer. (laughs) (laughs) As for where you can get Sluts and Whores, it's now available at Chapters and Indigo online, which is super exciting. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. And of course, you can get it from Amazon if you're okay with Amazon. And then the publisher their website has it available too. But I would really appreciate, especially if Canadians go and get it on Indigo, because the more they get people buying it, the more they may consider stocking it in their stores. Ah, very cool. I will have links to all of your stuff down below and especially the link for your book on Indigo. (laughs) So people will be able to find that. And yeah. Okay, so that concludes the interview portion with C.E. Hoffman. Another big thanks to her for coming on the podcast. Make sure you guys check out her book, Sluts and Horrors. It's available. I put the link in the description for chapters to buy it. It's only $12.99, and it would really help her out. So make sure you check out her book. I do have a few questions for the advice with Ashlyn. So the first question I have here is, do providers receive any satisfaction of the orgasmic type from the intimate activities with a client? And I think, yeah, of course. I mean, not every escort you're seeing is faking it. And I have certainly had real orgasms with clients. Yeah. Short answer, yes. Long answer, maybe not all the time, but yeah, it definitely happens. Another question, what is the view of providers when a client request includes the use of toys during a session, perhaps allowing the client to use a vibrator on the provider so the provider enjoys as much sexual satisfaction as the client? Or is the toy request just creepy? I don't think requesting to use a vibrator is creepy at all. I can think of much more creepy things to ask, you know, like my real name or my social insurance number, you know, so I think that's totally fine. And uh, I think a lot of escorts keep a vibrator on the bedside table anyways for these purposes. And if somebody asked me that, I would absolutely not be creeped out and I would absolutely welcome that request. So I say go for it. And if she says no, whatever, respect her decision. But I think for the most part, you're totally fine. I had another question from a fellow provider who follows me on Twitter. She wanted to know how to grow her Twitter following. And honestly, there's ways to grow any social media following. I think Truly, if you just Google it, there's, I don't know, ways to like schedule your posts at certain times of the day where they get the most interaction and post consistently, follow other people, retweet, make sure your tweets have engagement, engage with other providers, engage with clients, simple stuff like that. As for me, I kind of just post whatever I want on Twitter and shit post and put my boobs on there. And that seems to grow my Twitter That being said, I don't know if that would work for everybody. So I am not really the social media expert here. So (laughs) I just got lucky. I'm not sure how it happened. My other account before it got shut down had 15,000 followers, which I mean is great, but that took me six years to accumulate. And I've seen other providers gain that much in like 
you know, a couple of years or so, or even shorter. So it really just depends. But yeah, have engagement with your tweets, tweet frequently, uh, make sure you're following other people. And yeah, it should grow. As long as you're active on Twitter and posting good stuff that people like, then people will follow you. Okay, another question that I got, someone asks me, is there a best way for sex workers to get respect from the public? And does it hurt the perception of sex workers when they constantly beg for stuff on Twitter and then brag about how much money they make? For example, like I need a new sofa or clothes or boob job money. The list is long. So I think what this person means is do sex workers hurt their reputation by begging for stuff on Twitter? And, you know, it's none of my business what people are asking for on Twitter. I think that's up to you to decide and the people who are or are not choosing to send sex workers money for these things. I personally don't really ask for things like that on Twitter. But, you know, I had someone reach out to me recently. It's very funny. She will come on the podcast eventually. And she does ask for things on Twitter all the time. And, you know, I don't really care. I don't notice, like I said, none of my business. And she's like, yeah, I just ask for whatever I want. And eventually someone will get it for me. You know, like she got a boob job, she got a house, she got a bed, you know, stuff like this. And it's all because clients gave it to her. And, you know, I think if you want to leverage your platform and guys are willing to do that for you, why the hell not? And how much money somebody makes online or what you perceive to be how much money they're making online is really irrelevant. You know, you can decide to support whoever you want in this industry. And if you don't want to support people who you think are begging for money on Twitter, that's your own choice. But I don't think we should really judge anybody. You know, I don't judge anybody for their hustle. That's what it comes down to. Anyways, thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far and make sure you follow me on OnlyFans, follow me on Twitter. All of my information is linked down below. This podcast still has no sponsor. I'm the sponsor. So help me out here. I'm also soliciting for reviews. So if you leave me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, make sure you send me a screenshot. I'll give you a free trial link to my OnlyFans. And yeah, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Life Skills. Follow Ashlyn on social media at No Life Skill or at Adore Ashlyn. Be sure to like, comment, and hit that subscribe button. We'll see you on the next show.